0: As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live, virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. Pro Se Law Through Sixties Weekly Podcast. I'm your host Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, Amber. How are you?
0: Doing well. Um, we are down one, Bill Donahue today. He's off for the day, but happy to have a show with you, Alex.
1: Yes, always, uh, always fun to do the two man weave with you. I wanted to bounce uh, a news item off of you. Uh, New York City. I, I I hope that the non-New York uh, listeners will indulge me in a little bit of local news. New York City is about to have uh, the first mayoral election it's ever held using ranked choice voting, um, which is obviously where you you don't just vote for one person; you rank the choices, just like it sounds. And to kind of explain how that process works, the current mayor, Bill De Blasio, gave a gave a little demo today. I don't know if you saw about uh, he used. Uh he ranked his pizza toppings to explain ranked choice voting. Did you see that?
0: Ooh, I did not see that. And now I'm a little nervous because I've seen De Blasio just eat a slice of pizza and it it's not the most usual <laughs> thing. So I just really wonder what his topping choices are.
1: Yeah, so he fired off um it was interesting. I yeah, he's he he does a lot of weird stuff. Uh we don't we certainly don't have time to get into that now. <laughs> First two off the board. Gr- green peppers and green olives. Uh, Now, there's nothing wrong with these toppings inherently. I will say, green peppers is like a perfectly normal topping to order, placing it number one above the staples like sausage and pepperoni, um, unless you're uh, vegetarian, of course, um, is kind of weird. I've literally never seen green olives on a pizza. Yeah, that one seems the stranger
0: of the two. I will admit I did order a pizza just this week that had green peppers on it, and that was the only topping. So I don't know. maybe I'm de Blasio.
1: No, you're not you are not de blasio uh, you're 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 a much more fun hang, of course. Um, <laughs> it was just it was just pretty striking. It was like a very odd press conference where it ended with him like screaming at the press corps about um, pineapples. Uh, he was really mad about the pineapples as people tend to get. Um, I anyway. don't
0: love that either. For the record, <laughs> don't don't love the pineapples yeah. either. But I mean, it seems to me like the vast majority of people would probably put pepperoni number one. It just seems like such a classic.
1: Yeah, I go sausage, pep, mushroom, and then probably the, the when when I go sort of off the board somewhat is actually banana pepper. Uh, the 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 yellow banana pepper, not the green pepper. You get a little bit Ooh. of a spicier kick there, which I which I quite enjoy. Um, that was but high school. Could go, pizza. I could go. Oh, nice, nice. I could go for hours uh, doing pizza topping chat with you. And maybe we should do a podcast that's entirely about that um, someday. But we do have a lot of stuff to get to. I know you had a really interesting uh, chat with Frank Runyon uh, for the main segment this week. What was that all about?
0: Yeah, Frank has done some really fascinating um, reporting for Law360 about an alleged scandal where an arm of the Toyota Corporation allegedly bribed some Thai judges. You don't hear stories about judges allegedly being bribed very often. This is really one that I wanted to unpack with Frank. And he came on the show and sort of explained it all and what we should watch as it continues to unfold.
1: Yes, uh, great to have Frank on the show, finally. He's, a, he's an awesome reporter, and it's a really interesting story, so I'm um, looking forward to hearing that one. There is, uh, however, some news to get to, so uh, where should we start?
0: Yeah, let me kick us off with uh, an old classic for Pro Se, which is let's talk about COVID insurance suits again.
1: Oh, my! Oh, um, my!
0: I know. We can't get away from it. But I just want to throw out a quick one here at the top of the show because I like kind of diving into the little wrinkles of how these are going and what makes one different from another. So this one's interesting. Um, A judge in Rhode Island recently refused to dismiss a business interruption lawsuit. It was brought by a Providence, Rhode Island strip club. The judge wouldn't toss it out because he said the owner of that club sufficiently showed it was entitled to something called civil authority coverage even though the policy has Mm. a virus exclusion.
1: Super interesting. Obviously, most of the time we talk about insurance stemming from the pandemic and the closures that fell out was like, whether you can interpret a policy to include a virus or a pandemic or some other thing, this is a little bit different. Um, And we get to talk about the budding uh, Rhode Island strip club scene, which is right up there with Atlanta and Houston, as I understand (laughs) it. Um, but uh in any case, let's uh let's let's talk a little bit about the uh about the decision here and about the case.
0: Yeah, yeah. This one was brought by Club Desire. Um there the owners of that club sued their insurance company, Scottsdale Insurance. They were denied coverage for their pandemic-related losses. So the judge actually ended up agreeing with the club that it lost its actual function as an adult entertainment venue. Due to government closure orders. So even though the policy had a virus mm-hmm. exclusion, the judge said it's too early to decide if that exclusion precludes losses caused by state shutdown orders. So essentially what the court is saying is that it's worth weighing whether the club suffered its losses from the virus or from government closure orders instead. And that all right. matters because there's a couple different provisions in in the, this policy in particular. One is the stuff about viruses, but they have something called civil authority coverage in their policy.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about that. I mean, their policies cover many different things, and sometimes they can perhaps be in tension with one another, which I know is what this case is about. Explain civil authority coverage to us.
0: So glad you asked me about that, because I had to look it up. Um, (laughs) Civil authorities uh, are exactly what you expect them to be from the name, actually. It's um, it's local, state, federal governments. And sometimes they have to evacuate or prohibit access to certain areas. Typically, this isn't about a virus. This is usually after a natural disaster in an area and the area is still unsafe. So they block people from going back to their homes and businesses. So if a government entity takes that kind of action, obviously you can see how there'd be big financial implications for the companies that operate in the area. So civil authority clauses in insurance policies provide coverage for just that such occurrence. Okay. Um, you can see, obviously, how handy this kind of coverage would sure. be for businesses that were impacted during the pandemic because shutdowns were mandated by many local or state authorities. So really clear how there could be big implications from this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, we got civil authorities closing things left and right for much of the last uh, fifteen months here, or whatever we're at now. Um, I'm I'm supremely interested in all of the. I you know, if you'd talked to me two years ago about anything to do with insurance law, I'm not going to lie to you, and I don't mean to offend anyone uh, who's listening, who's a practitioner of this area of the law. It wasn't high on the list, but obviously circumstances change, and I'm like just really intrigued by all the different. You know, decisions that get handed down and the and the way that, the, that these cases unfold in the wake of COVID. Um, this one has a sort of very sp- special fact pattern. Um, where does it leave us?
0: Yeah, I mean, th- I wanted to bring this one up because we're at a stage now where it's still early going, right? This case has yeah. just survived dismissal. But the fact that it survived dismissal at all is telling that there's something here to be sorted out by yes. the justice system. So... We're going to continue forward to Discovery. One of the big issues will be to tease out why exactly did this strip club have losses? I mean, was it because of the virus or instead Mm -hmm. because of the government closure orders? And how do you discern where the harm is coming from? And the answer to that may honestly help set strategy for a bunch of other insurance suits related to the pandemic.
1: All right. So for the next story, uh, we're talking... Crypto, we're talking ransomware, we're talking negotiating with terrorists to a certain extent. Uh, Very interesting stuff. Just Um, all buzzwords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we're talking about specifically is um, the fact that uh, this week the Justice Department announced, well it didn't announce, it disclosed in a court filing uh, that it had recovered nearly all of a $4.4 million ransom that was paid to hackers who halted the operations of the Colonial Pipeline Company last month. Now, this is a pretty rare uh, sort of reclamation of funds uh, that were paid uh, as part of of a ransomware attack. And this adds, like, a new dimension a little bit to a very sort of quickly evolving legal and ethical landscape uh, for companies that get hit with attacks like this. So there's lots of different prongs to this one.
0: So I only followed this story in so much as the headlines were about people hoarding gas when this happened, Um, but what exactly was the incident itself, the hack itself?
1: (laughs) Yeah, as I was revisiting the story, I was reminded of the, I can't remember which agency it was, but some government agency told people not to put gasoline in plastic bags, which uh, is helpful advice. Um, But uh, what you need to know, uh, last month, there was a Russia-based hacking group Uh, which is known as, and I am not kidding at all here, Dark Side. That is the name of the hacking collective or the hacking coalition, whatever Little
0: on the nose, but all right.
1: Quite on the nose, yes. Um, It hacked into Colonial's operations in May and basically locked the company out of uh, part of its computer network that it uses um, for day-to-day business operations, and it threatened to release sensitive data to the public if the company did not pay a ransom of 75 Bitcoins, which at the time, like I said, was worth about $4.4 million. Uh, The hack uh, briefly shut down the company's uh, operations basically entirely. Uh, It uh, provides uh, gas to much of the East Coast, as you alluded to, Amber, it shook up gas prices, oil futures. There were lines sort of snaking around blocks around in gas stations throughout the southeastern U.S. It was it was pretty gnarly. But um, uh, like I say, yeah, the Justice Department has now reclaimed uh, a good bulk of that ransom.
0: Yeah, it was uh, a reminder of how fragile some of our <laughs> yes. um, systems we rely on really are. But it's... um. It's heartening news that they got the money back. What mm-hmm. happened with that?
1: Yeah. So the thing to know is that it's it's pretty rare um, for that to happen. Usually, when ransom is paid, it kind of disappears into the ether. Um, but the DOJ filed an affidavit in federal court on Monday, saying that it was able to basically trace the group's transactions on the blockchain, which has a which has a record of all of almost all Bitcoin transactions. And it obtained a, a what they called a private key to the, um, wall, the digital wallet that the group uses to store the money. Um, they didn't disclose how they got the key, uh, interested to know how that happened. But uh, in any case, that's what the filing said. The ransom was 75 Bitcoins. They got back uh, 63.7 of them, which now is worth just, about, uh, just over $2 million. The uh, price of Bitcoin has been fluctuating wildly, as it often does. It's unclear right now if the company will actually get the coins back. That's um, uh, an interesting wrinkle that doesn't have a lot of clarity at this point. Um, Colonial CEO told the Senate uh, told a Senate hearing this week that they filed an insurance claim to recover the money. So, and this is, sort of a of a separate piece from the feds actually getting the money back Um, he expects that insurance claim to be honored but we'll 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 have to see how that how that shakes out
0: this is sort of the high profile case that you know people were really watching because of the downstream effects of a a short-term gas shortage because of this attack and all of that but there's a ton of ransomware stuff going on what's sort of the trend in that action right now
1: yeah, there's a lot of activity on this front, and I would really highly recommend that everyone read um, several stories. We'll, we'll we'll link them in the in the show notes uh, from our friend Ben Kochman, um, who's been all over the speed for really the much of the past year. Basically, there's kind of a crisis within the business community about whether to pay off ransomware hackers. Um, it's a huge business uh, extorting people um, with ransomware attacks. There was a cryptocurrency firm called Chain Analysis estimated that ransomware victims handed over about $350 million in ransomware payments last year. Uh, the actual cost is likely much higher when you consider unreported um, instances and things like that. The conflict is, I think, pretty evident. You, you know, paying the ransom obviously incentivizes hackers to keep... These intrusions going and kind of perpetuates the cycle of cybercrime. On the other hand, um, for a lot of businesses, this is you know often a, an existential threat to the way you do your business, and you can just pay what is a relatively small sum to make it go away. When you consider losing your entire livelihood, um, but the government is beginning to you know take a, a little bit of a firmer stance in this area. Last year, the uh, Treasury Department warned that ransomware payments could mean that companies that are that are targeted with attacks are actually flouting international sanctions by um, financing criminal enterprises. Hasn't been a lot of actual action against companies yet, but it was just a guidance that was issued saying, like, hey, there are certain instances where you could basically you could basically be be violating international sanctions if you make these payments. Um, so that's something that is on people's radar and is part of the calculus when they're deciding whether or not to pay up. Um, in this past February, New York's Department of Financial Services told insurers that it need, that they need to develop a, quote, rigorous and data-driven approach to cyber risk, um, that, uh, that the agency at that time also flagged the Treasury guidance that I just referred to and basically said... I mean, you you need to do a lot of risk calculation when you decide whether to pay. They didn't go up. They they have not come out and said you know you aren't allowed to do this, or we will you know I don't know prosecute you for doing this. But it's something that they're really advocating companies take a take a careful hand with. But um, in any case, the colonial case is kind of aberrant with regard to recovering ransom that almost never happens. But it's a quickly evolving landscape, and it's something that businesses um, uh, are having a lot of headaches about right now.
0: As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Toyota is embroiled in a scandal over allegations the company bribed Supreme Court judges in Thailand in an effort to overturn a $350 million tax judgment. U.S. officials are investigating possible Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations and have recently impaneled a grand jury. Law360's own Frank Runyon broke the story and he's with us today to explain it all. Welcome to the show, Frank.
2: Hi, Amber. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to talk about this one. It's um, really a, a story that spans a lot of a lot of things, a lot of geography, a lot of big dollar figures, and bribery. I mean, you couldn't really get bigger than that. So let's talk about those sort of big picture allegations. What is being said about what Toyota did here?
2: Um, Well, basically, our reporting found that federal investigators um, are looking into allegations that Toyota Motor Thailand may have funneled bribes uh, through a private law firm to uh, Thailand's Supreme Court judges in an effort to overturn uh, a pretty large tax judgment against the car maker, um 11 billion baht, or about 350 million U.S. dollars. And, you know, basically, if that's true, those payments would violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which um, bans U.S.-linked companies from uh, bribing foreign officials.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, you know it's a pretty easy to get your head around that part of it, but there's a lot of sort of moving parts here. Who all is investigating on the U S side about this alleged wrongdoing?
2: Um, well, when it comes to FCPA, um, both the sec and the DOJ can investigate. Um, our understanding is, uh, that both of them are. So they're running parallel investigations, um, and, uh, currently looking to establish, um, you know, track down the documents and, and understand where exactly um, this, this all happened and how it happened, if it happened.
0: Yeah. Um, how did this even come to light, Frank? I mean, usually you don't hear about a big company um, involved in a scandal of this magnitude. It's, it's pretty shocking and startling. So how did we learn about this?
2: Um, so without revealing too much, Um, I, uh, basically found out a lot of this because of, uh, Toyota's own internal investigation. So this is Toyota investigating itself. And what we're essentially reporting on is, uh, both the results of what they found internally, um, when they hired Wilmer Hale to do an investigation, um, and then what federal investigators are now following up on.
0: So what did they find? What, what did Wilmer Hale? um, Reveal in that in that investigation.
2: Yeah, so uh, just to take a step back um, to try and get my arms around this thing, essentially this all starts with the customs department in Thailand hitting Toyota with a tax bill for a third of a billion dollars. And they're saying, you know, Toyota, you didn't assemble the cars in the country the way you said you were going to. And therefore, you owe us a lot more in taxes um, for 2010 to 2012, two years. Um, so years pass. Toyota begins to fight this. They sue the Thai government. The car maker wins at the trial court, loses at the appeals court, um, and they start preparing a Supreme Court appeal. At some point, somebody at uh, the Japan-based Toyota Motor Corp suspects something is wrong with Toyota Motor Thailand's legal department. They hire Wilmer Hale to investigate around September 2019. And they ultimately find that um, top-ranking Toyota Thailand attorneys contracted with a well-connected local law firm to help establish a back-channeled Thailand Supreme Court um, leadership. So the way that they did that, um, or the way that they allegedly did that, um, was they planned to to hire a sitting senior judge on um, the high court. Who happens to be the former chief judge himself, um, in addition to a senior appeals court judge, who advises the Supreme Court on um, tax cases. And uh, so, what Wilmer Hale found is apparently they they told the government um, that documents showed uh, Toyota Thailand paid nearly 18 million on a 27 million dollar contract. Um, with uh, a $9 million uh, success bonus um, if Toyota actually won the case. And again, that's meaning according to our our sources.
0: Yeah, so that's all, I mean, very interesting that this is what we've um, gleaned so far. But now we've taken it even a, a step further that you reported on a next big step here in the U.S. that federal investigators had impaneled a grand jury. Can you tell us what we know about that step?
2: Right. So basically, Toyota takes the findings from their internal investigation, and they decide to turn them over to DOJ and SEC. And that's in April 2020. Um, And then DOJ, SEC start their investigations. And um, now we've learned that it's progressed to the point where um, the federal prosecutors in the Northern District of Texas um, are using a, a grand jury, we believe, Um, just based on um, former uh, prosecutors um, who have done these sorts of cases before. We believe that they're using um, the grand jury to cut subpoenas for bank records and other documents um, that they might need. Um, So, yeah, go ahead.
0: and, And that would just be like the typical thing that we would expect based on similar type cases, right, that are these FCPA investigations, that that's where... You would bring in a grand jury to help you get that additional sort of discovery type stuff
2: absolutely so at this point it's sort of using the investigative function of the grand jury Um, and uh, these are long-haul investigations typically two to three years average um, for this kind of a thing before you see some kind of a resolution so
0: so I know a lot of this is, you know, it's, it's been hard to report on, I'm sure, for you because there's so much you've had to uncover and piece together. Um, so you might not have a, a definitive answer to this, but is there any guesses out there from experts about what exactly they're looking for and how that would play into the fact pattern of this case?
2: Yeah, I mean, essentially what FCPA comes down to is bribery. It's about, um, you know, whether a company bribed foreign officials, um, to gain some kind of a business advantage. Um, and so essentially what they're looking for is where did the money go? It's a classic follow-the-money situation at this point, um, we would expect. So essentially they're going to be looking at the bank records and seeing, you know, were the judges, were the judges paid? Do we have evidence of, of that? Um, you know, what can, we, what can we prove based on what Toyota itself told the federal government?
0: And that would have to be a step beyond what we already know, right? Like we know about some payments, but they were to former Thai justice, a former Thai justice and people sort of outside of the active court.
2: So in Thailand, you have a lot more movement um, in the high court. There are many people um, that have functioned as the president of the court um, who now uh, take senior status and remain on the court. And that's the case in, in, uh, in, in, with one of these judges that uh, is allegedly implicated, Direk and Cunningham.
0: So I would imagine, given the high stakes here, um, that we've had at least some response from Toyota about what's going on. What have they said so far?
2: Right. So very little, basically, um, <laughs> is the quick answer. Um, in March, Toyota dropped a single line um, at the end of an SEC filing and said it was cooperating with DOJ and SEC after quote unquote, reported possible anti-bribery violations. Um, Other than that, we've sort of repeatedly got boilerplate, um, which I have right here. Um, And so what they've, they've said to us repeatedly is that Toyota works tirelessly to uphold the highest professional and ethical standards in each country where we operate. We take any allegations of wrongdoing seriously and are committed to ensuring that our business practices comply with all appropriate government relations. regulations. (laughs)
1: Yeah, regulations.
2: I think,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we would expect from a company that's in the middle of something. You know, they're not going to say a lot as this unfolds. Um, right. But- and
2: let me just let me just add one more thing here. Um, I think it's important to remember that our reporting um, shows that these judicial bribery allegations come from Toyota itself um, and that the company has never denied the truth of our reporting on this uh, to date.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting how this unfolded, that they self-reported to the U.S. government and that they were the ones that instigated their own internal review of this other division in, within the company. Um, but what's going on in Thailand? Because this isn't just a scandal for a big auto company. This is potentially a scandal for the court system in Thailand.
2: Right. So, I mean, this story and the government reactions to it have been on the front page of newspapers in Thailand. Um, So the the day after we published the story, Thailand's court administrators, um, the court of justice set up a 10 person committee to gather information. A couple days later, they set up a four judge panel to review uh, the allegations of uh, bribery. And they've repeatedly held press conferences to update local media. And I believe that the latest is that they delivered a letter to the U S ambassador in Thailand seeking more information on the U.S. investigation and, interestingly, requesting to observe the grand jury in Texas.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to continue to watch these sort of parallel investigations, right? Like one in Thailand and one set of investigations that's gone to the grand jury here in the U.S. and Texas. It seems like we've... um, You've uncovered a lot here, Frank, but we are really in the thick of it now. So as you continue to watch this case develop, what are you looking for? What should people have on their radar um, as potential next things that could further the narrative here?
2: Yeah, we'll obviously be really interested to see what the U.S. government finds ultimately um, and uh, what kind of um, a settlement they reach with the SEC. If they do, uh, will there be indictments? We don't know. Um and uh you know, I, I don't believe there's ever been a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act case involving bribery of a Supreme Court. Um so I mean of course if anyone at Toyota wants to let me know what's going inside the company, that would be great. I would love like to know. So you know, <laughs> open you call fall. here
0: on Pro Se, yeah. yeah. Let us know. <laughs> Frank, I think this is really um a fascinating one. Kudos on the good reporting. If anybody wants to read all of your coverage about this, they can head on over to our website. We've got lots of great stories. If this piqued people's interest, they can get a lot more from what you've written about this over the past year. So thanks a lot for being with us.
2: Yeah, of course. My pleasure.
0: our show is something offbeat and Alex I think you have one that I'm really gonna like talking about
1: yes well it is uh, it's graduation time we're probably a little past graduation time I think Um, but that of course go we uh, we congratulate uh, all of the uh, undergrad and law school graduates out there all the graduates really Uh, kind of a funny little story was making the rounds in the legal trades this week a uh, a young woman named Alexis Wright um, who Graduated in May from the uh, University of North Texas at at Dallas uh, Law School, she did this little photo shoot where she was posing as uh, Elle Woods from Legally Blonde, and she really went all out. In uh, it. She had the yeah, she had the pink business suit, she had the she had the designer bag with a little dog in it. She was in the mock courtroom doing this. Uh, she captioned the photo with the iconic I quote: saw these... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go ahead.
0: I saw these photos, Alex, and they are. Awesome. Um, you're you're not really doing it justice just to say it. She's in the moot courtroom. Their moot courtroom is very cool looking. So it's you know all the wood you would imagine, <laughs> and um the dog is like peek peeping up out of the bag. Oh um, yeah. There were great, great homages to uh, Legally Blonde.
1: Yeah, and we uh, it was it was very well executed uh, by Alexis Wright. She got some love from uh, Elle Woods herself this week. Reese Witherspoon. Uh, logged on to Twitter, uh, sort of retweeted it, gave her a hearty congratulations. I did just want to, um, you know, I I wanted to ask you specifically, Amber, uh, you attended law school in the 2000s. Uh, Sure did. What, to what extent, if any, did uh, Legally Blonde sort of shape your decision to uh, go to law school? So,
0: uh, fun fact, Elle Woods would have graduated the same year as me. Oh, so okay. I feel like we're just contemporaries. We basically went to law school together, Alex.
1: That's true. Um, I mean, does this, was this like a formative film for you uh, as, a, as, a, as an aspiring I, legal practitioner?
0: I could talk about this for hours and hours. Um, I know people like to just think it's like this fluffy, you know, chick flick kind of movie. But it's really a woman's empowerment movie, and I love it. To my core, yeah, it's it is. I think inspirational to a lot of young women out there who maybe get overlooked or taken for granted. Sure. and they see, um, you know, El Woods is an exaggeration, of course. Yeah, um, sparkly and pink, and the president of her sorority, but I think <laughs> that she is a symbol for a lot of women about. You can succeed, and you can do it with your own style.
1: That's well said. She's also an inspiration to Gemini vegetarians, which she and her dog both are. Um <laughs> sure. so, so that's important good. stuff. Yeah. The movie. I think it. Um, it came out 20 years ago, which I can't believe. I was in high school when the movie came out, and clearly the message is still reverberating to this day because uh, it's uh, it's touching the lives of of people who are graduating law school literally as we speak. So uh, nice little uh, nice little story there. I
0: love this story. Yeah, I love it, and I would love to see a slew of additional Elwoods-themed photos. So if any of our um, listeners out there have ever done any kind of Elwoods photo shoot, shoot (laughs) us an email. They will make me laugh. I will love them. I might retweet a few of them if we get any. Yeah. Um, Would love to see it. So what what a feel-good way to end today's show.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Um, very very specific request from you. If anyone has ever done an Elwood's <laughs> photo shoot, please let us know. I'm eager to see uh, what filters in because of that. But a um, uh, good enough place to leave it. Good show, Amber, I think.
0: Yeah, thanks for being with me today, Alex. Yeah, thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Frank Runyon, and our contributing reporters, Daphne Zhang and Ben Kochman. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you leave a written review and that will help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, especially Frank's great reporting on that alleged Thai bribery scandal, check out our website. That's law360.com podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.